Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora, curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. This is brought to you by Fruity Pebbles. Add some creativity to your mornings with Fruity Pebbles. With big fruity flavor to feed big inspirations. Fruity Pebbles turn the world into a playground. Whether you're turning ordinary paper into art or creating a culinary masterpiece, Fruity Pebbles can be the spark that ignites creativity. What are you going to yabba do next? Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. yabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 18. Convoy. Saturday, June the 13th, exactly a week since I received Diana's letters and danced at the cafe. Although the CO and the rest of the pilots are themselves dancing at the Sliema Club, I am alone in the mess, 
for I need all my strength, unblunted by alcohol, to pull me through the ordeal of the next few days. Leaning back in my armchair and looking to the right of the window, I notice that the Maltese women have arranged new flowers in the earthenware pot, like new blooms on a grave. The war goes on. Now the convoy battle is upon us. The moment draws closer. In the darkness that has settled quietly over our Mediterranean world, our reconnaissance planes and Wellington bombers, patrolling close to the Italian naval bases, wait for any sign of movement from the enemy fleet. That fleet must get up steam and sail shortly to achieve an effective interception with our own slowly approaching merchantmen. Enemy fighters and bombers must also be prepared, for in the last 48 hours not a single daylight air raid has disturbed the silence here. I don't want to die. I long to return to my wife. I am no doubt boring my unmarried companions by my continuous talk about her. The CO tells me I am too much married, as if it were some kind of vice. I want so desperately to see her again, yet I feel caught up in some inexorable pattern that must be seen through to the end. I remember Bob during the sweeps last year. I remember him standing apart from his companions in the dispersal hut, explaining his jinx, how things had gone wrong in his last three flights. I remember his determination to face it and how he died in flames over Latuque. Although I do not believe in jinx as a third and evil force between God and individual men, I am aware of pattern, and things have gone wrong in each of my last three flights. Last Saturday, just after receiving Diana's letters, there was a raid coming in. Not only had I a long way to taxi, but I had to taxi fast to reach the runway and take off before the coolant temperature of my engine went beyond the danger mark. Taxiing fast was not easy, with my wingtips perilously close to a cliff face on one side of the narrow track and a stone wall on the other. The long nose blocking my vision did not help, but I was thoroughly enjoying the skill required. I knew, of course, that Maltese labourers are removed from the aerodrome when there's a raid, but I did not expect their bus driver to take a short cut. Suddenly, the bus came round the corner at me. I risked tipping the Spitfire on its nose by applying fierce brake, but the bus, without making any attempt to stop, swerved towards the gap between my wing and the wall. There wasn't room. The driver's cab struck my wingtip with a crash of metal. The nose of my aircraft, with its turning propeller, swung towards the passengers, crowding the bus windows. An anxious moment, but managing to stop the propeller, I enjoyed the inevitable impact. The cannon protruding forward from my starboard wing ended up inside the passenger's compartment. The expressions on the quickly withdrawn faces were magnificent. The Maltese streaming out of the bus ran off down the road with the driver running after them. Time was short, the raid was approaching. Chiefy was quite right in not wanting me to fly the damaged plane. The crumpled wingtip did have an adverse effect on the controls as I climbed steeply into the sky. After the action, I gave no more thought to this particular incident, but on Monday last, when I flew again, the pattern began to close in upon me. On Sunday night, Luca was heavily bombed. Although delayed action bombs were exploding on Monday morning, I was soon airborne leading Babyface and two new boys. Hello, Dennis, Woody called. Little jobs, Angels 25, 10 miles north of Grand Harbour, coming south. Both new boys making their first trip were flying erratically. My number two's formation flying was quite hopeless. Hello, Dennis, little jobs over Luca, Angels 27. We'll fire some marker shots. Through the windscreen, beyond the elongated flat nose, flanked by exhaust stubs, I saw the white marker puffs appear in succession across the blue. Turning the formation and clambering upwards towards the sun, my attention was divided between eight 109s high up on my left and the new boy who had bungled the turn. 109s coming down, look out, somebody called. A black Messerschmitt flashed past from a different direction. As I swerved towards him, I noticed two more 109s immediately above us. After checking the new boy, I was preparing to give chase, but glanced into the sun first. There were six more 109s in the act of turning down upon us. It was, of course, a trap, and we were almost embroiled in it. At that precise moment, the new boy panicked. He dived steeply downwards in lonely silhouette. It was just what the Huns wanted. 
By leading my remaining two Spitfires swiftly to cover him, we were wide open. The Huns seized the opportunity. We were lucky. In the brawl that followed, we managed to destroy one of the enemy without loss. When it was all over, I stared down at the familiar pattern of runway, G-shelter and perimeter track rotating slowly below me. I realised I would have to give the new boy a pretty stiff talking to after I had landed, but the piece of gliding downwards was so gracefully delicious that I relaxed. The aerodrome sailed up to meet me. Just above the ground, I levelled off, making a beautiful three-point touchdown. Bang! Hard left rudder wouldn't hold it. The Spitfire, out of control, swung violently off the runway, over the rough grass, circling towards some open bomb craters. Missing the craters, it came to rest in a cloud of dust. Left wing high in the air, shrapnel had exploded the starboard tyre. Climbing out, I discovered red flags. My aircraft and I were squatting on a scattered nest of delayed action bombs. Chiefy and his airmen realised the danger before they came hurrying out. Holding a replacement wheel at the ready, we had just lifted the right wing when, thunderclap in our ears, we fell flat, aeroplane on top of us. I've never seen men work so fast to replace a wheel as they did then. It wasn't until we had pushed the Spitfire back to its pen that we discovered that the freak blast from one of the bombs had killed a soldier and someone wearing a blue hat in the opposite direction. With my attempt at the third flight last Wednesday, the pattern of freak accidents closed more tightly. I was lying in the hot sun, studying from my history books the gay influence that Pharaoh Akhenaten had had on Egyptian art, when Scramble, not us, the CO's section of four Spitfires were off first. I glanced up to watch them. A few minutes later, the airmen were pointing up at a formation of Italian bombers, very high in the sky, silvery against the blue. They seemed to be heading straight over the top of us, but, running for the slip trenches, we estimated that the slight discrepancy of angle might make all the difference. The air rush of bombs ended in the first explosive crack. This giving me the direction, I peered over the sandbags. The first stick was bursting across the end of the runway, streaming towards us in a bubbling column of black smoke. Passing, however, to our left, another clump was erupting behind the lookout tower, huge black columns leaping up from the hills and valleys. Scramble! Our turn. At the end of the runway, I opened up the throttle for takeoff. Halfway down the runway, with the engine spluttering and banging, I knew that I was not going to get the machine into the air. Closing the throttle and swerving in and out of the rocks thrown up by the bombs, I turned my Spitfire back along the perimeter track. Angrily determined to get airborne, pumping the throttle to clear what I hoped might only be a choked carburetor, I arrived once again at the takeoff point. The plane accelerated despite bangs and crashes from the engine. I pulled it up about 20 feet. With sudden alarm, I knew we were not going to gain enough height to clear the hilltop. I cut the throttle, slammed down the flaps and side-slipped back to the ground. As bomb holes, stray rocks and the walls rushed to meet me, again I was lucky for, with full brake, full rudder swerving off the runway, I pulled up the plane in a cloud of dust beside the astonished Chiefy. Instantly he found an alternative Spitfire. With sweetly firing engine I opened up for yet another takeoff attempt. Bang! A grinding of metal behind me. The tail wheel had fallen off. Refusing to stop, risking damage to the elevators, which for all I knew were being wrenched to pieces along the ground, I slammed the stick hard forward to get the tail into the air. The din finally ceased as I swept over the low hills in pursuit of my three other machines. We carried out our duty without much opposition. The rescue boat that we'd covered picked up Sergeant Innes, one of the CO's section, who had been shot down into the sea. He'd had a miraculous escape. In combat with the Italian fighter escort, a cannon shell had exploded under his seat. The seat had fallen forward, pinning him helplessly against the instrument panel. With full throttle, the Spitfire had plunged vertically from 25,000 feet. With the speed of its dive, it had finally broken to pieces. Innes had been thrown out, his parachute torn open. For the remaining few feet, he had been lowered quite gently into the sea. After I had landed with the scraping and screeching of metal, poor Chiefy came and stared at me. Shaking his head sadly about my plane, he urged his men to get going with repairs. 
He had also found the trouble with my first Spitfire. The magneto points had been so widely opened that most of us suspected sabotage. My old friend Chiefy was doubtful. Perhaps sabotage was responsible for what happened today, Saturday, June the 13th. One of our bow fighters was circling the aerodrome when, quite unaccountably, it plunged earthwards. In this sudden disaster, not only the pilot and observer were killed, but many old friends, Chiefy and a crowd of his airmen had no chance to run clear. They were killed instantly. Thus, I sit here, stretched out in the armchair. The pattern still unfolds as we who are left await our turn to die. With my hands hanging loosely over the ends of the chair, I listen to the ticking of my wristwatch. The convoy battle draws closer. I feel that music would be wonderful to ease the foreboding that overwhelms me. None of us can go on surviving this kind of thing forever. Leaning over to the wireless, I switch it on. I found some music. Hardly what I expected, but some European station is playing Verdi's Requiem. The sound of it washes over me like great waves. My breathing slows and my awareness of my body diminishes. Closing my eyes, I can actually see the huge waves with foaming crests thundering towards me. The music seems transmuted into dream. I watch the greenness of the waves crashing about me, then rushing past. The water is rising above me. Violent movement is calmed, for I am below the surface of the ocean, watching the gently rocking greenness shafted by sunlight. An endless succession of waves overhead. The greenness becomes more quiet, darker and deeper. Sinking downwards, motion is stilled, colour solidifies to grey. A blacker and blacker grey grows rigid about me. It is rock. I am embedded in rock. I am firmly held, tenderly held. Fossil-like, I drift untroubled and timeless. Sudden relief in the darkness, the ruggedly hewn space of a cavern has opened out. Without lights of any kind, I thought its rectangular greyness was empty. But there is, stretched out on a tall slab that rises from the floor to dominate this tomb, a huge figure, powerfully massive in chest and limb. Its strong head tipped back on the slab in death. Fastened in the rock, I cannot move, but watching that immobile strength, I feel somewhere deep inside me that it lives. Suddenly a voice, ringing with command, echoing the cavern with power, and far below, buried in hidden catacombs, life stirs in release. Men and women race upward in joy, through the night of the rock, to the surface of day. Cell after close-packed cell are freed, streaming upwards in quickened ecstasy of living. In a twinkling of an eye, my turn must have come for I was suddenly poised on a green hilltop watching the last of the hosts of people floating silently out over a wide valley. Our flight seems to swing outwards from the world, and in fear, as the earth shrinks away into the darkness, we are nearing the fountainhead of power and love. It is the procession of God in all his sublime majesty moving purposely through creation. It is an assembly of beings without number, in a form that is neither spherical nor pyramidical, nor in any dimension but glory, a rising and descending movement of praise and adoration. It is the evening of Sunday, June the 14th. Not many minutes ago, on our rooftop at Sliema, our AOC Air Vice Marshal Hugh Pugh Lloyd, briefing us about our part in the convoy battle, told us that two convoys, from east and west, are approaching our island simultaneously. From the east, the convoy from Alexandria, codenamed Alex, is under heavy air attack from Crete and Cyrenaica. It is far beyond the range of our fighter aircraft, and its own defensive air umbrella has miscarried. Rommel has broken through our desert army, and our aerodromes on the North African coast are being overrun. The convoy is being defended by the only ships we have to the east of here, just a few cruisers and destroyers. Yet the Italian fleet of vast numerical superiority, including battleships, is steaming to intercept it. From the west, the convoy from the United Kingdom, codenamed UK, steaming towards us from Gibraltar, has already lost several merchant ships to enemy bombers from Sicily and Sardinia, lost them despite being protected by a battleship and other units of the British fleet. Yet the battleship and heavy units must withdraw tonight. The Admiralty, because of losses in the Far East, dare not risk them any further. 
The convoy, lightly escorted by a cruiser and some destroyers, is to slip through the narrow channel between the coast of Tunis and the western tip of Sicily. During darkness, within a few hours' time, our twin-engined night fighter planes will be out there to help them. But the worst attacks are expected to develop at daylight tomorrow. The convoy, with its diminished escort, will have ten hours steaming under the noses of the enemy bomber force of four or five hundred planes. At 70 miles out, the convoy will come under the full air umbrella of Spitfires from Tikali and Halfa, but the distance from 110 miles to 70 beyond the effective patrol range of Spitfires is critical. This critical distance is to be covered by us. Long-range tanks have been fitted to our machines, for only we at Looker have sufficient length of runway to get into the air with the extra weight of petrol. As the Air Vice Marshal went on to explain that only four of our Spitfires could be over the convoy at any one time, one section on its way out, a section over the convoy, and a section on its way back. I stared at him. Four of us against a possible four or five hundred. He further explained that if the convoy is attacked, as we are leaving, we are to stay and fight. When our petrol runs out, we are to bail out by parachute in the hope of being picked up by one of the ships. With horror of what is expected of us, I stared past his stocky figure at the houses turning gold on the far side of the bay. I could hear the people chattering and laughing and the girls giggling in the roadway below. Monday, June the 15th, dawn on the aerodrome. The first two sections of four Spitfires each, led respectively by the CO and the dreaded Hugh, have flown out towards UK convoy. I lead the next section. On G shelter roof, I watch the Wing Commander aerodrome controller as he briefs me for my flight. He's already told me the bad news about Alex and that although the heaviest possible strike force of torpedo-carrying Wellingtons have been out during darkness, the Italian fleet is still steaming to intercept the convoy. What he has told me about UK fills my mind, for this is where our duty lies. All the merchant ships have been sunk except three. Two of these are still in position, but the third, having been badly hit, is creeping along behind. The convoy is a long way behind schedule. We will have to fly out at at least 140 miles, but its exact position is uncertain. The last message received from it was two hours ago. At that time, it was not only being shelled by two Italian cruisers of heavier calibre than the escort, but it was being bombed by JU-88s and 87s, bomb-carrying 109s, Kants and CR-42s. I stare at the wing commander. His last words remove all doubt. There's no news of your first eight Spitfires. We are afraid they've all been shot down. Desperately, I try to look at him calmly. I must listen to his last instructions. Steer 287 degrees magnetic, take off in five minutes. As the jolting bus takes me back to my Spitfire, I stare at the familiar rhythm of the wood grain under the window. As I step down onto the hard ground, I feel the minute stones through the soles of my shoes. No, I can't tell my waiting pilots that we're expendable, that we're going to our deaths. This is my final responsibility to bear alone. 287 Magnetics, the course and the convoy's about 140 miles away. By the way, I add smiling, we'll probably see a couple of Itai cruisers. In the intimacy of this cockpit, helmeted with my goggles on my forehead, an oxygen mask covering the lower half of my face, I'm apparently a killer as I steer this modern fighting machine along the dusty track towards the drone. Yet tears are pouring out from under my eyelids. I've got to die. Never have the yellow sunlit fields appeared more beautiful. There's a group of Maltese children, a perfect little group for a painting, waving to me from the corner of the labourer's field on my right. With my last throb of joy for them, I wave back. I feel but a husk of a person, a charred shell, empty, burnt out. I can no longer pretend, yet I've got to keep up the appearance of an enthusiastic fighter pilot. It is Tuesday night, the convoy battle is over. I suppose we've done our duty. Not a single merchant ship was lost to enemy air action after Spitfires arrived over UK convoy at dawn yesterday. There were repeated attacks by waves of enemy bombers as the relics of the convoy crept nearer and nearer to our island and now two ships that everybody's efforts have dragged through the mouth of hell are being unloaded. 
I've been patrolling over them, over the oil stains from the escort ship that blew up on a mine last night, over the disabled destroyer that limped so slowly and so nakedly towards the coast, occasionally turning my section over the harbour smokescreen below which the unloading has been going on. Although when flying, I've been watching the skies with protective anxiety lest enemy bombers struck the ships from an unsuspected direction. Although other people have been in action today destroying enemy bombers, no attack coincided with my patrols. I've seen nothing. It was much the same yesterday. My efforts coincided with moments when the enemy was refuelling his planes. Yesterday, as I took off, I was numbed by the news that our first two sections had been shot down. I was resigned to the inevitable. Yet the wing commander was wrong. Most of our planes did return. In fact, throughout the whole of yesterday's battle, our squadron only lost three Spitfires. It's ironical to look down at the farewell note I scribbled in my diary for my wife. Strange even to think about yesterday. Steering 287, I passed close to the yellow beach of Linosa Island. The empty sea ahead, a vast expanse of blue with the smoke of battle drifting in brown-black layers. Two ships, one steaming behind the other, and picked out white by the sun, suddenly appeared from the smoke below us, threw up salvos of shells. The Italian cruisers flew on till ETA, but no sign of our ships. Flew on another five minutes, then seven minutes more empty sea. I grew increasingly worried. Sweeping through layers of smoke, repeatedly called convoy ship control. No answer. It must have sunk. Deciding to trace smoke to its source, I turned north. Enemy island of Pantellaria, with its conical mounting, loomed towards us, startlingly clear at times, at others dark and sinister in the smoke. Passed over two destroyers, almost stationary, friend or foe, no means of telling. Four more nearer the island, heading west. West? Our convoy should have been heading east. They must have been the enemy. Turning south again, found a cruiser or battleship burning furiously, smoke gushing up into the sky. No sign of convoy. Found oil stains on water, some curled and ended abruptly. Ships gone down, submarines depth charged. Followed others southwards. Our convoy was miles south of its expected position. Returned after an hour in battle area. Went to G-Shelter to report. Green and LeMay on the roof, watching twin-engined Beauforts circling Drome, all trying desperately to land. After going to the rescue of Alex's convoy, after lobbing torpedoes into Italian battlefeet, they were all in a shot-up condition. Three had crashed. One wreck lay opposite us, pulled clear of the runway on its belly. Watched another coming in with rudder control shot away, wildly off the runway, sweeping towards the bellied wreck. It was revving its port engine in a desperate attempt to avoid disaster. Seemed poised there. With a great crash, it tore through the stationary machine, flinging debris and puppet-like bodies high in the air, crabbing onwards over the grass, buckling its fuselage snapping in two, and a tongue of fire appearing under one engine. Flames leapt skyward as airmen ran to help. One black figure and then another got out of the crumpled cockpit onto the wing. As I gave my report, watched other machines crash, seemed as if monsters men had created had broken loose to reap a bloody revenge. Then back to the tent. Stayed in the tent for hours waiting for my second trip out, muffled heat with telephones ringing. Another section came back, only three of them. Babyface had shot down an 87 in flames and damaged another. Ingram had claimed a probable 87. Smith claimed a probable 87 and 109 damaged. The fourth man, Rowlandson, was down in the sea. Convoy, 50 miles south-southeast of Pantellaria. Then we heard of Beaufort Formation's achievement. With their torpedoes, they hit a battleship, two cruisers and a destroyer. Their gunners shot down a Cant 1007, a Mackie and an 88. Went on like that, hour after hour, waiting in the tent, sweltering hot. The CO lay flat on the dried grass with his head close to the side. He rolled up a flap of the tent to get a breath of air across his face. We were all exhausted. 
an effort to rouse ourselves to cope with serviceability. Smith, who'd been moved to a different section to make up numbers, went out again but never came back. Then McSee, one of the best of our pilots, also missing. Finally got out my helmet and parachute and walked out to my plane for my second trip. The convoy, I was told, was coming up between Lenosa and Lampedusa Islands. But sudden reprieve. The convoy was at last being plotted on the ops room board. Spits from Halfar and Takali were taking over. Last night, a great crowd of us in the lounge at Sliema. Babyface, so happily modest about his successes, in the centre of an adoring bunch of South Africans, left him to his victor's laurels. Listen to some other pilots. They were delighting in a tale of horror of how they shot down an Italian seaplane they found by itself, of how they went on attacking it as it lay on its side in the sea, went on attacking it until it sank. The old eye ties must have been scared stiff when we went on shooting, they boasted. Everybody's blood was up. I seemed to be a sorrowful onlooker. Then we heard that UK convoy close to our island was being repeatedly attacked by waves of 87s. We imagined a slaughter of German machines, resentment in the mess that having brought it so far, Takali was reaping the reward of easy victories. I was too tired to care, wanted to get to bed, knew we were on at dawn. And today, Tuesday, the day after the battle, patrols over the two merchant ships being unloaded and some dismal, dismal news. The convoy from Alexandria has turned back. Despite all our bombers' efforts, Alex's convoy has turned back. It's fantastic. Our bombers and other bombers from Egypt have repeatedly hit the enemy so hard that the Italian battle fleet is in full flight back to its harbour at Taranto. The way is clear for Alex's convoy to reach us, yet the convoy is heading back towards Egypt. Someone's surely blundered. It is said that the convoy has run out of anti-aircraft ammunition, but it was practically within our fighter range. We could have brought it safely in. All day long, the whole of our Malta fighter force has been available to protect it. Our battle is therefore... A failure. Of the two merchant ships that have reached us, one is damaged with its number four hold full of water. Malta has been reprieved for only a few short weeks. God knows how long we can last. Rations hardly exist. Yet now we must anticipate cuts. Someone advises throwing all the weighing machines into the sea. A few minutes ago, Smith, whom we thought was dead, walked into the lounge here. He's been telling us that yesterday over the convoy, he shot down an 88, but his own engine was set on fire. After bailing out, he was picked up by a destroyer. He's been describing how the deck of his destroyer was already crowded with merchant ship survivors, how they stood as JU-87s and 88s dived upon them, and how, just as they were about to enter Grand Harbour, a Polish destroyer behind them blew up on a mine. More survivors came aboard, most of them cut by flying metal, their teeth chattering with cold. One Pole, whose stomach had been split open, having jumped into the sea without clothes, being stung all over by jellyfish, looked up at Smith with a single question. How many planes is the REF shot down? All this makes me realise how much a fighter pilot's life is abstracted from the horrors of war. Courageous McSee, for instance. No horror in his passing. Someone saw what he thought was a bird, but no. It had Spitfire's wings as it glided towards the water, then a splash far below. When I consider what the Navy and the Merchant Navy have faced, I am utterly ashamed of feeling so utterly tired and burnt out. Would it be different if I'd had any success in the last two days? If I had met enemy planes over the convoy and shot some down, I might have felt entitled to lead all these keen men so full of energy. I am flight commander in name only. I have never possessed the offensive spirit. In combat, I have always erred on the side of caution. Something for nothing has always been my policy, except when desperate occasions demanded risks. I have only one thing to be happy about. I have never lost a single pilot whom I have actually been leading in the air, but nobody cares about that. I've destroyed seven enemy planes, one of them shared, of course, with Ingram, but inevitably it's an unofficial score, so it's not much good. It's not a solid recognised achievement that would command the respect of my pilots. 
and now I'm burnt out. I seem cut off from all my excited companions, yet there's only one thing to be done. I must build on the ashes of myself some kind of intense enthusiasm by which I can pretend to lead and inspire them. Wednesday, June the 17th, by our planes. Petrol is now so short that we're only allowed to run the bus once a day. This means that we all come down here before dawn and stay for 18 hours continuous readiness. Much worse for the M and their reliefs don't seem to have arrived. With pitifully small rations, they're on duty day after day and often night after night on this sun-blistered aerodrome without much chance of a day off or rest. What's going to be the outcome of losing almost 90% of the convoys? We've very little petrol, very little food, no reliefs and practically no ammunition. So the war goes on. What really worries me is the way my body's in open revolt. For weeks I've fought the increasing dog pain and in the last few days it's utter lifelessness. But this morning I've been vomiting without success in the ruins of a stone house behind my Spitfire, vomiting into my oxygen mask while flying over the harbour and repeatedly leaving this tent after coming down on the ground again. I suppose the CO must have told the doc because a few hours ago I was taken over to Umtafa Hospital for an examination. Docs and hospitals with all their genuinely wounded patients make me feel a fraud. Thank God I've got back here to Luca on the job again. We're sitting in the tent. It offers some shade against the hot sun. Wellington bombers and Beauforts are continually taking off and circling somewhere above us. Some may be on air test, others may be going up on strikes. I've written to Diana. I can hear another Wellington's engines running up before takeoff. Now the Wellington bomber throbs low overhead. I'm reading Eric Newton's European painting and sculpture. Sudden silence, a cough of the engines, then silence. It's going to crash. Ring for the ambulance. Come on, Clark, on your motorbike. We're first on the scene, but thank God the huge bomber hasn't caught fire. It has ploughed its way through the trees and lies against the broken walls on the hillside at the end of the Safi Valley. Of the six people in it, three are lying out on a rocky grass slope. Two others are walking about aimlessly while the pilot, his hand streaked with blood, staggers towards me. Have I been hit in the back? he asks. Turning him round, I lift his torn shirt to see a gaping hole where the seat has crumpled into him. Forbidding him to light the cigarette with which he is fumbling, I ask if he had time to turn off the fuel and ignition, for there may still be a danger of fire. Don't think so. After wriggling through the buckled angles of metal into this compressed cockpit, I have turned off the ignition switches, but the fuel levers are too badly bent, can't move them. Straightening up in the cockpit, I look out over the hot engine, across the flat areas of bent wing and through the gap of sliced trees, beyond the quiet figures on the grass and the waiting ambulance. I can see the whole length of Safi Valley, with the wind-whispered wrecks standing up on stilts. Alas, I must climb out and get back to my Spitfire, but I hesitate. There's something so familiar in the silence of this haunted valley, a silence disturbed only by the drip, drip, drip of petrol. The dying warmth of this newly sprawled wreck would make a splendid foreground for a drawing. No time to draw. Must hurry to readiness. Friday, June the 19th. Although Woody took me off to the hospital again today, it was a great joy to be able to spend the time between medical examinations just as I liked. A hot Sirocco wind, filling the air with steam and laden with perfume from the flowering trees, blew me down the steep hill from Umtafa Hospital and up the other side into Medina. I discovered a museum. Going inside, I met a certain Professor Scortino, lately of the British School of Painting in Rome. He was superintending his students in the endless task of renovating masterpieces of painting, pictures that had been wrecked and shattered in the Valletta bombing. The professor was most kind to me. He showed me the mosaics, for the museum is built on an ancient Roman villa, explaining that the finest pavement is protected by a layer of rubble lest the Germans blow down the building. He uncovered part of it to show me its quality. I looked down at the colourful monument from the past, then stood back staring down the museum hallway with its tall marble pillars. 
I stared at all those men repairing the pictures, their palettes covered with thick, wriggling oil colours, seated there, working busily behind their easels. As a pilot debarred from their world, I stared at them. The simple fact of men making things, creating beauty, putting things together instead of being engaged in destruction, evoked such pain of sanity that I had to leave. As if there was no escape from the good, true and beautiful things, I happened to glance, as I was walking back through the Medina streets, through an open wooden door into what I thought was a carpenter's shop. The sunlight fell upon the green apron of a seated figure. A gaunt man with a yellow moustache and tightly pursed lips was working busily at a Corinthian pillar capital. The least I could do was to help Joseph Ferrugia, the gilder, so I swept his studio for him and brewed him a pot of tea. After sharing tea, he taught me how to lift the delicately thin gold leaf with a soft brush, how to lay it in place on the capital without folding or creasing it, and how to smooth it out and polish it. These simple visits have, I think, revived some of my energy, for I've been trying to draw since arriving back at Sliema. But now the air raid sirens are screaming, 40 more JU-87s arrived in Sicily, and the Germans have not yet sunk our ships in Grand Harbour. I expect this will be a big raid. I wander out onto the flat roof. No sound in the sky. Nothing disturbs the star-strewn blackness above the sea. Perhaps the Germans are transferring the 87s to Libya. The news from the desert is very bad. Rommel is pushing our armies further and further back towards Egypt. Gazala has been evacuated, and there are fantastic rumours that Tobruk has been surrounded. Sunday, June the 21st. Continued bad news from Libya. Our armies are in full retreat. Rommel's not only encircled Tobruk, he's making a full-scale assault. Our own siege reflects these events. It is unusually silent as we wait in the heat by our spitfires. In the distance, Bowfoots and Bowfighters are being refuelled. Malta is not idle. Even if we fighter pilots and anti-aircraft gunners once describe our Hugh Pew as Achilles' shield, have no immediate raids to deal with, the bomber boys and crews of torpedo-carrying aircraft have been out fulfilling their ancient role, striking at Rommel's supply ships. Achilles has regained his sword. As for me, sitting here, high on the sandbags behind my aircraft, I am fed up with my stupid body. I am trying to draw, trying to obliterate its continuous sensation of sickness and pain while any minute I may have to force it into the cockpit there. The docs, who sent for me again yesterday, don't know what's the matter with me, and I am worried. There is an ugly rumour that our squadron is going to be sent to Egypt. Although I so desperately want to see Diana again, if another parting is destined, then so be it. One cannot deny help to our desert armies. But, and I can't help asking myself this, in my present lifeless condition, am I going to be an asset or a liability to the squadron? Nine Beauforts have just taken off. How clumsily they stagger round the sky with their cargo of courageous humans. How clumsily they bear the weight of the long black torpedoes slung beneath them. The twin-engine bowfighters of their escort flash silently in pursuit. More graceful machines. Watching them, I know that however lifeless I feel, I've got to stick it out. There's no escape from war till the enemy delivers death. To break out of my lifelessness, I'll draw. And look, the torpedo formation is turning and setting course. How sweetly delicate the grey and white camouflage on top of their wings pale against the blue sky. I must forget the quiet colours and the gentle things of life. I'll plunge myself in war, enmesh myself with machinery, mentally impale myself on torpedo, bomb and bullet, paint the empty sky a cruel blue, grade it into the whiteness of death out there over the sea. I'll turn the quivering heat into anger, the dust into blood and the rocks into huge white corpuscles torn from the earth. 11.30pm. News of disaster. To Brook has fallen. Tens of thousands of our men have been captured together with vast stocks of petrol and war material. Rommel can laugh at Malta's efforts to sink his supply ships. Freshly supplied, he can drive straight onto Cairo. Nothing but our defeated armies to stop him. Official now, the squadron flies to Egypt tomorrow. Indeed, I've been superintending the fitting of long-range tanks. 
I stare down at the route that the squadron is to fly, such an impersonal route on the map. After crossing the sea, we'll have to follow in broad daylight what is now the hostile coastline of Libya, where enemy fighters are operating. It will approach the contracting battlefront from behind enemy lines, but whether it can reach the Allied front at all depends on how far back Rommel has pushed our armies. But I am not going. I could not believe it when Woody, ringing through on the field telephone this afternoon, told me that I had done my 200 operational hours, that I was tour expired, that I was being sent home to England. Not only that, but sent home to England tonight. To England tonight. I still can't believe it. I thought he was playing a cruel joke on me. I still couldn't believe it when he came over to the mess this evening and stood me a drink at the bar. It wasn't until Air Vice Marshal Lloyd himself wished me a good trip that hope flared into golden certainty. I am going home to England. Even now I am waiting in G-Shelter Cavern. Bombs are crashing on the aerodrome above. I am staring with joy at the aircraft arrivals board, shaking and shuddering on the rock wall. Two PRU Spitfires, a Beaufort, eight Wellingtons, two Blenheims, two Hudsons, and a Lodestar are due to land here and depart again during darkness. I will be flying in one of the Hudsons. Although I am joyous, wildly joyous, I am at the same time imagining the silent battle that must be waging in the hearts of each of my old companions. The CO, Hugh, Pancho, Cyril, Babyface and many others will also leave this aerodrome in a few hours' time, flying eastwards to an unknown destination. I already know their courage. I know them as men. But how I wish I knew so very much more about them, their individual experiences, even the inspiring things they've each done here, both on the ground and alone in the air. Inevitably, I have been looking out at the war through only one man's window. I have seen my companions with immature eyes. Already I am beginning to see them more clearly. I will never forget them. The raid is now over. I've climbed the shelter steps. Although my Hudson will soon be arriving, hot, jagged shrapnel must first be swept clear of the runway over there. The stick of delayed action bombs that has fallen along it must either be dug out or covered over. I gaze across at my old dispersal point for the last time. There are flickering fires with huge shadows dancing across the red aerodrome. Two of our Spitfires appear to have been hit. There are other fires, magnesium white, behind the lookout tower. The moon is half full and the stars are quite perfect. Five and a half hours ago, with the blackout curtains drawn across the windows and no lights of any kind allowed in the narrow cabin, we took off from Malta. Imprisoned in darkness, we have sped out past Pantellaria and south of Sardinia, but now the curtains have been drawn back. We are high in the air over the western Mediterranean, the vibrating wings of our twin-engine plane poised over a pre-dawn sea. We spot an enemy ship and wireless for bombers. In exactly two hours' time... We will land at Gibraltar. From my seat in the tail, I look down the length of the drumming fuselage, the pale green, starkly functional with curved metal ribs. I wonder about the three other passengers, a naval officer seated on some mailbags at the far end, smoking a cigarette as he talks to one of the crew, an army lieutenant asleep on the right, while on the left of the cabin, sprawled on a low bed that we fixed up for him, a wounded soldier returning to England with only one leg. What are their thoughts and dreams? I think of Diana as we fly out of darkness, for beyond the windows dawn is brightening into day. I am imagining the joy of our meeting, for I can see the light pursuing us across the sky. Diana doesn't know I'm coming home. Now the sun itself is rising out of the sea behind the tailplane, through the rusty haze. The mountains of Algiers look golden as they pass slowly along the port windows. The End Thanks for listening to One Man's Window. I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I enjoyed reading it. After the war, Dennis Barnum returned home and enjoyed his life with Diana and their two sons. 
He became an art teacher at Epsom College, but could be relied on to enliven a lesson with stories of daring do in the skies over Malta. Sadly, he died aged just 61 and is buried in Dorset. If you've enjoyed this story, there are nine more Second World War audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, but you get a weekly live version of the podcast, plus all these audiobooks for free. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. For now, it's time to leave the heat of Malta, the smashed up streets of its wonderful capital city, Valletta, and the dusty airstrip at Takali. Thanks for listening to One Man's Window by Dennis Barnum, read by me, Al Murray. Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goal Hanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with... Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the Founding Fathers, the men who made America. We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America? What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We, we know the faces from the banknotes. But they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability lies the nuance and complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of their beliefs, their experiences. These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally fundamental to what American politics looks like today. It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men. Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.